Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Welcome to the Mini Break, your daily podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Thursday, September 8th. Tennis fans, we get the Grand Slam ending we deserve, as it'll be the top two players in the 2022 WTA points race, Iga Sviantek taking on Own Jabur for the right to be crowned the 2022 U.S. Open champion, of course, on today's show. I want to recap how we got to this point of the event, talk about Day 11's women's singles semifinal matches, of course. They were two distinct chess matches, yet both equally fascinating. And of course, the day started with a bit of an upset. Now, Own Jabur was the higher seed going into her battle on Thursday, but it was Caroline Garcia who was the favorite, according to the public, according to the experts, certainly according to our friends at the DraftKings Sportsbook. And by the way, justifiably so, as Garcia not only captured the 2022 Western and Southern Open crown, not only had won 13 consecutive matches entering this semifinal battle, she had also won 31 of her last 34 matches. And the power tennis she played through her first five victories in New York, I declared it earlier on this show this week, the best tennis I had seen from any player in the women's singles draw, but a shaky start from Garcia combined with ruthlessly efficient play from Own Jabur ultimately leads Jabur to a straight set victory. And of course, on today's show, I want to talk about the mechanics of that straight set victory. Why? It's not always plan A for Jabur, but plan B, C, and D. Her ability to take away the thing you want to do best, that makes her such a special talent and such a necessary counterpoint to so many of the power tennis based players we see right now in the women's game. She just is an excellent contrast. And as such, Jabur, to me, is one of my favorite players to watch in all of professional tennis because she can do so many different things. She can throw all of those things at her opponents. Therefore, you know, the match doesn't get monotonous. You can see different points, different constructions throughout the course of the match. And we saw all of that on display from Jabur in her semifinal victory. So, of course, want to get into that result. Talk about the stats for Jabur. Obviously, a second consecutive Grand Slam final. I've talked about what she's done since August 2020, but to just go through all the finals she's made, the degree of success she has had not only this season, but again over the past two and a half years against the best players in professional tennis, we are seeing the Own Jabur prime and certainly. You know, we talk about the parody, the lack of sure things in the women's game. Own Jabur's a sure thing. She's proven that over the past two and a half years. At the biggest events, in the biggest stages, 
she's going to be there. She's going to be in the mix. And having more of the Jabur caliber, I call them tier two players, just solidified tier two players in the mix, it makes every event that much more exciting. So certainly want to talk about Jabur's victory in the history she continues to accomplish throughout the course of her career. Of course, match number two on the day was to me the better of the two battles because the chess match in this one was just fascinating. And of course, in the end, it was Iga Svantec overcoming a set deficit, dealing Arena Sabalenka in eighth consecutive three-set loss at the majors. Sabalenka had her chances. She was up 4-2, a break of serve in that third deciding set. And her power tennis was ultimately the deciding and determining factor in this match. Now, both the consistency and inconsistency of that power ultimately is the script I want to get into today. But man, the other thing you have to say, and this probably should have been the lead, the physicality of Iga Svantec at age 21 is just remarkable. And to see the totality of things she can throw at opponents, but so much of that is based off of her success from the baseline, just tracking down that extra ball, generating depth out of her corners, turning defense into offense so fluidly. Svantec particularly down the home stretch of set number three. I mean, from 4-2 down in the third, she captures four straight games to take it, 6-4. But, I mean, I think she dropped fewer than 10 total points. And again, it was just the way she went about conducting herself after finding herself down in that third set, the deficit she had to overcome twice in this match. She's still not playing her best tennis, and yet, again, able to find solutions and has found them in six consecutive matches and now finds herself with a very favorable matchup, not to spoiler alert on which way I'm leaning in the final, but man, what Iga Svantec has done this season, putting herself in a position to become the first player since Angelique Kerber in 2017. It's been five years since a player won two major titles in a single season. In singles, I want to point out, in singles, because Krachikova and Yakova have the chance to complete the career Grand Slam and win, I believe, a third major title in this season in the U.S. Open Women's Doubles Final. But, you know, again, has the opportunity to become the first player since Angelique Kerber to capture multiple singles majors in a single season. Iga Svantec's 21 years old. Let's just all keep that perspective in mind and to watch her again wear down Arena Sabalenka. Weather the storm might be the better terminology to use, to be honest. It was a fascinating chess match. And again, not to repeat that term, but I do want to get into each of these battles here on today's show. And of course, that's going to be the focus. We're going to talk day 11 of this 2022 U.S. Open. Now, if you are looking for preview content, of course, the Great Shot Podcast is always the place you want to turn to. We have Ace of the Day segments on that feed every day throughout the course of the tournament. Only, I suppose, two preview podcasts left, as I've already released our day 12 preview. We've got our women's singles final, our men's singles final previews to go. And so we're chasing, getting back Back to even. We have come remarkably close after a horrible week one. I am now 7-2 and two in my past nine picks. And again, with a good ending, we're going to end up in the positives, folks. So not only do I offer my picks, I, of course, dive into the tactics, dive into the stats in each of these matches. If you're looking for preview content, it's not too late. Head on over to the Great Shot podcast feed. By the way, that Ace of the Day segment going to continue after the U.S. Open as we are so happy to extend our partnership with our friends at DraftKings. That said, of course, the reason we've been able to recap every day of the U.S. Open on this 
podcast feed is because of the support we get from all of you listeners and, of course, because of the support we get from our friends at Tennis Point. You all know the deal. Tennis-point.com. Use the promo code CR15 to let them know we sent you there. With that said, let's get into the tennis. And I anticipate this will probably be one of the if not the first show of this 2022 U.S. Open, where we may actually go under the half-hour mark, as there's only two matches I want to dive into today. I do want to talk about the doubles eventually. I want to talk about the juniors eventually. Colette Lewis is long overdue to come on this show, and of course, I hope many of you listeners are reading Colette Lewis day in, day out, as her work is why I do what I do today. Her daily blogs over at Zoo Tennis, which you can find by going to tennisrecruiting.net, clicking on the link, or just zootennis.com. You can follow her on Twitter. Free plug for Colette there. Uh, she recaps all of the junior action, whether it be the boys and girls 16s and 18s nationals, whether it be the U.S. Open junior event, whether it be, you know, again, the ITFs that happen year in, year out. Uh, it's long overdue that we speak with her about everything that's happened over the course of the past month at the junior level. Obviously, we'll talk about that at some point. We'll get into the doubles events. Shout out to the U.S. Open hosting the first junior wheelchair events. Just love to see the increased opportunities for all people to be able to participate at the most grand level of this sport. And so shout out to the U.S. Open for launching those wheelchair junior events. Hopefully, we begin to see them at other tournaments as well. And, you know, again, the doubles, mixed doubles, men's doubles, women's doubles. You don't think I was watching every second of Will Blumberg, Katie McNally, which feels like it's a mixed doubles team that was made in a Cracked Rackets doubles pairings factory. Uh, you are sadly mistaken. And I do want to get into all of that, but we'll save that for our recaps at the end of the week. Give me some more material to talk about on Sunday night. With that said, again, focus on today's show is the women's single semifinals. Let's start with the match that went three sets. Ultimately, it was Iga Svantec who earns that three-set victory over Arena Sabalenka Svantec into a third major final. Again, she is just 21 years old, folks. You look for Svantec yesterday. It was a 3-6-6-1-6-4 victory over sixth-seeded Arena Sabalenka. In my—and I've done this— in my name of trying to be honest to all of you listeners, but I think I have painted an inaccurate picture of Iga Svantec's performances so far in New York because I continue to lead every Iga Svantec segment with the statement, well, she's not playing her best tennis right now. And I do think that's an important predicate for all of you listeners to know because despite Iga Svantec's victory, why I speak so glowingly about her on this show is there is just another level. We saw her hit during her 37-match win streak. And by the way, I have the official number. It's 37. I'm going to stop saying 39. I promise to all of you listeners. 37-match win streak. We saw her level during that 37-match win streak where she lost, what, like five total sets, something crazy like that, and just match after match. It was 21 winners against seven unforced errors or 32 winners against 11 unforced errors. And yeah, some of that's on the clay courts where she has a little bit more time to extend into her forehand and Obviously, such a comfortable mover, and while her physicality shines on the hard courts, her physicality in comparison to other players on the clay courts, she's just that much more fluid in and out of corners than just about every other player not named, I don't know, Coco Goff, 
maybe Jabir. Like, that's the list of elite, elite, elite clay court movers in the women's game. I mean, Marie Buzkova belongs on every list of elite movers. But you guys get the sentiment I'm trying to express. The point being... Sviantek has not had that sort of rhythm, that sort of winner to unforced error, glowing stat totality throughout the course of this event. Yes, she's been hovering over 60% of first serves in just about every one of her matches, but she's also been broken fairly consistently, at least I believe four times in every match that she's played. And throughout each of her six victories now at the U.S. Open, she's yet to have a match where she finishes in the positive from a winner to unforced error ratio perspective. And while this match tells that same script for Sviantek, 24 winners against 31 unforced errors overall, sets two and three, we finally started to see Iga Sviantek's best tennis. And in particular, how can I prove that to you from a metric standpoint? Qualitative analysis is one thing. We love to mix in the quantitative analysis here at Crack Rackets. Well, let me read you the numbers. Set number one, three winners, 13 unforced errors. Not great, Bob. By the way, she loses that set 6-3. Sabalenka gets the break 4-4-2, holds her, or excuse me, 4-3-2, I believe, holds her serve 4-4-2 and kind of stays in front from there. And we'll get back to Sabalenka's front foot tennis. We'll get back to how her plus one ability, her ability to swing so freely and yet connect so consistently on the return of serve, the pressure she put Iga under throughout the course of the match. It did feel like we were playing on Sabalenka's terms through many parts, if not the duration. You know, if you asked the script of the match, who did it go more according to script to? I think the answer to that question unequivocally has to be Arena Sabalenka, but in set number one in particular, why it went so according to script is that Sviantek was spraying and to be broken in that two-all service game. Sviantek missed two approach shots. She missed an easy backhand sitting approach shot to an open down-the-line court. Not only did she miss it long, she missed it wide as well. And, you know, she sprays on the forehand. Uh, One of them was off of a very powerful Sabalenka return. But as I said, going into the match, you know, when you can pressure Sviantek's forehand with elite pace, and I know you can say this about everyone, but if you're looking for minute details, how else do you attack the world? Number one, you got to pressure that forehand, the extreme grip, the bigger backswing with elite pace. Sabalenka has the skill set to do that. She absolutely did in set number one and, you know, was firing on both the first and the second serves, won 75% of her first serve points and 50% of her second serve points, which when you keep in mind, you're playing Iga Sviantek, who breaks opponents over 50% of the time. That's a damn good number for Sabalenka, who, you know, was broken early, seated a break back after going up an early break on Iga and gave that break right back, but only was broken once in that opening set. And considering she only made 55% of her first serves, that speaks to how regardless of what serve it was, Sabalenka kept swinging put that pressure on Iga, and whether it was the pace to the forehand wing causing the forehand to spray, whether it was points like the missed backhand up the line at two all, that approach shot in particular, Iga just didn't have a rhythm in set number one. But again, to get full circle here, I didn't forget the point I was trying to make, I promise, listeners. Why do I think Iga started to play her best tennis? Well, again, in six matches, her winner-to-unforced error ratio has been slanted towards the unforced errors. Set number two, 
10 winners against 7 unforced errors. Set number 3, 11 winners against 11 unforced errors, when, which when you're playing someone with the pace of Sabalenka and you just have to feel some pressure to try and play on your terms and maybe go for things a little bit earlier in the rally than you normally would, to play even tennis in set number 3, to be plus 3 in set number 2. She has a positive ratio for two sets now consecutively. That's the first time that's happened in this event. We saw flashes of it from Iga last night. And again, credit to Sabalenka, who was so aggressive throughout the course of this match and played on her terms, said, you know what? I get it, Iga. You're very good at spreading me to the outer thirds of the court. You hit such a dynamic ball and you get me stretched outside the alley, in particular when Sviantek's hitting from the ad side of the court. You're so paralyzed as her opponent because if she has a forehand, her inside-out forehand is so heavy. If she has a backhand, you have no idea if she's going to go short angle with the backhand, if she's going to drive it cross court, she's going to change direction on you and drive it down the line. That Sviantek backhand is so dynamic, even if it was struggling early in set number one but man like again Iga found that range in set number two found that physicality where she was just extending shots an extra point and you know dipping first passing shots at the feet of Sabalenka forcing Sabalenka to pop up some volleys where you know Iga Svantec's going to be there and if you give her a second chance at a passing shot she's putting that ball away Iga also abandoned going big on the first serve, and it was just about hitting your spot with depth and some action on that ball. A lot of kick serves, whether it was high on the backhand of Sabalenka or into her body. You know, you look at this match, uh, Iga Sviantek makes 73% of her first serve, so it was 64% in set number one, had to play 12 points on her second serve in that first set played nine points on her second serve the rest of the way. So again, because of the mindset Sabalenka has of, if you give her a look at a second serve, she is going for broke. And again, in set number one, at the start of set number three, Sabalenka was connecting on that return of serve. Some of the forehand on the rises she hit down the line on the ad side or the backhand inside in on the deuce side, just, you know, again, overwhelming even Iga's backhand with her pace, her ability to drive through every forehand. And again, pressure Sviantek's forehand throughout the course of this match. Look, Sabalenka got off to a hard, hot start, breaks for a two-love lead. In set number three, of course, then has plays a loose service game, misses a couple of plus one balls, as Sabalenka is prone to do from time to time. You can't do that against Iga. She gets the break back, fights through a hold, but Sabalenka comes right back swinging, gets the break for 3-2. Down 15-30, she connects on a couple of serves and a couple of plus one forehands, and all of a sudden, she's held, and she's up a break 4-2. But then, again, from down 2-4 through the four consecutive games, she won 4-6-4 to decide that third set. Iga went into brick wall mode. And you can't just be passive against Arena Sabalenka because if you start to push, you just give her too many opportunities to be the aggressor and to be the aggressor while hitting from an advantageous position. If there's not some sort of oomph, some sort of pace on your ball that can sting Arena Sabalenka a bit or in the case of Iga, how well she spread the court, you know, changing direction, never hitting two balls in the same look, uh, never hitting more than two balls in the same location on the court, forcing Sabalenka to have to hit on the move. You know, again, Iga gave herself margin 
in those final four games really limited her unforced errors and yet didn't compromise the depth of her ground strokes and was still really smart in how she changed direction with her forehand, started hitting that forehand down the line more frequently in those final four games. Look, Sabalenka also played a terrible service game at 4-5. It's the second consecutive year she's done that. Same thing happened against Layla Fernandez last year, 4-5, third set semifinals. Three unforced errors to start out the game. Or maybe there was, I think, uh, excuse me, two unforced errors, plus Fiontek has, you know, connects on a return of serve, has her spread, gets to the net, shanks the overhead, but puts the overhead away for love 40. But again, she hit, she made one first serve in those three points and hit two plus one errors or two early rally errors in those points as well. Gave two for free. Iga takes one. Now you're down love 40. Sabalenka, a monster first serve swinging forehand volley combination to fight off the first set point where you think to yourself, oh my God, does she really have the sort of tunnel vision where she may swing her way out of this? But no, again, Iga makes the return. Sabalenka hits the ball, you know, again, a little radio action here. Sabalenka hits that ball deep to the Sviantec backhand, backhand cross-court from Sviantec. Sabalenka dumps the backhand in the net. Iga Sviantec advancing to her third major final. And again, totality of the numbers. She made 73% of her first serves. That doesn't indicate she was serving well, indicates she was serving smart which again is the big thing that she had to only play nine points on her second serve, didn't give Sabalenka too many free opportunities to just connect loosely on that second serve return. That was what Iga needed to do throughout the course of this match. I think a smart serving performance from her. 24 winners against 31 unforced errors, but again, she's plus three overall in sets two and three. An efficient nine of 14 at the net, although I think the ball Iga is spraying on most is her forehand approach shot. That ball, wide, long, cross court, you know, again, it, it it's going all sorts of different places where, respectfully, I don't think she wants it to go. That said, she did rein it in. She's moving extraordinarily well, and she had to move 3.3 feet more per point in this match. Sviantek covering a little over a mile throughout the course of this one, 500 feet more for what it's worth than Sabalenka, which indicates, again, Sviantek's ability to track down that plus one ball, that early strike from Sabalenka in the rallies. It was a great match for Iga, and now you look for Iga overall to laughable 40, uh, excuse me, 56 and 7 overall in the year, 56 and 7. She's winning 90% of her matches. I know I already did this rant, but Celis, Hingis, Sharapova, Serena, Sviantek, that's your list since 1990 of the best players age 21 and under on the WTA Tour. There's no one else who comes up with the sort of accomplishments that Iga and those other four players have have already had already accumulated throughout the course of their careers. And again, I know people get angry whenever you try and compare anyone to the greats because why are you trying to hold them to that standard? And now you're saying, do they have to be that good for the rest of their career for it to be considered a success? Is anything fewer than 15 slam titles a failure for Iga Sviantek? That's not what I'm saying at all. I think we should all just be in awe of what she accomplished. Understand, we have a generational talent on our hands and should be appreciating it as such. I mean, again, you look for Iga this season beyond the 90% win percentage. Again, 56-7 and seven overall on the year. What's crazier? 
The fact that six of her seven losses have come to players ranked outside the top 20, which is just like kind of a funny, fun fact about Iga, or the fact that she's now 15-1 and one against top 20 opponents this season. 15-1 and one against the top 20. Her win percentage against top 20 opponents is better than her win percentage overall, and she leads the WTA Tour in total matches played against top 20 opponents this season. I mean, come on now. What are we doing here? Like, it's just out of this world what Iga Swiatek's been able to accomplish. And again, even on a day where Iga Swiatek was not serving well, and I think it is safe to say that has been the predominant feature, uh, certainly, of why of her performances throughout the course of this match. And yet you look overall for Iga, fine. I'll go break Arena Sabalenka seven times throughout the course of the match. Iga, 7 of 10 on breakpoint opportunities. You look overall in the matches, there were 26 service games, so 13 apiece. Iga, again, breaking Sabalenka over 50% of the time. Seven breaks of serve in 13 Sabalenka service games. I continue to say it. I have... I scrolled the numbers. You guys know, social life, not the best here at Cracked Rackets right now. A lot of tennis here at CRHQ. The only number I've seen with a player over 50% as a break percentage for the duration of a season is Simona Halep. And I want to go and double check that now. Simona Halep, yeah, break percentage 2020, which by the way, was a COVID abbreviated year. But even in those 26 matches, Simona Halep, a 51.8% break percentage. She broke 49% of the time in her 46 and 12 2018 campaign. I mean, I'll look again right now. I'm only going to check one more name, Caroline Wozniacki. I don't have her numbers from 2010, 2011, but The top I see for her is 47%, which is obviously extraordinary, but that's not over 50%. With all due respect to Serena Williams and some of the numbers from her earliest seasons we don't quite have, I don't have her over 47% either. Iga right now is over 52%, which in my eyes, again, with what I've seen, and I don't have Navratilova, Everett, Groff, all those stats from the early 80s and 90s, but shout out to Tennis Abstract for what we do have She's breaking over 52% of the time this year. Over half of her opponent's service games, she gets the break of serve. You know how you survive service struggles? Break your opponent every other game. Gives yourself just time to hit through whatever it is you're going through early in a match. I mean, again, statistically... It's her third Grand Slam final of her career. It's her third Grand Slam semifinal of this 2022 season. I know I already mentioned it. She's got the opportunity to be the first player since Angie Kerber to win multiple Slam titles in a single season. That was back in 2017. She's 21 years old. 21 freaking years old. It's only going to get better from here. And again, what Iga Swiatek has already accomplished throughout the course of her career. If she retired tomorrow, would we induct her in the Hall of Fame? I think the answer is yes. I mean, how do you tell the story of this pandemic era of the WTA Tour? And for me, that's what inclusion in in the Hall of Fame means. It means you can't tell the story of tennis without including this player's name. Like, with all due respect... Can we tell the story of tennis without Tomas Burdich? I think the answer is yes. Can we tell the story of tennis without David Ferrer? I think the answer is yes. I think both of those guys, you would say, well, there were a bunch of Ferrer, Burdich, Songa types who all played the big three extraordinarily close, and there's a group of guys who perhaps in a different era would have thrived, but 
you know, again, if you're telling the story of professional tennis, you have to include Andy Murray because he was in the mix, world number one, 2016, Olympics, et cetera. Um, if you're telling the story of 2020 through August 2020 through the 2022 season, you know, Iga Swiatek, Ashley Barty, those would be the two names you would discuss. And as such, they're probably the two names who, and Naomi Osaka, by the way, I don't mean to disrespect her either, who you got to throw in there. And you're just like, yeah, they, um, those have been the three dominant forces. A flash of Bianca Andreescu, we just haven't seen it quite enough, but those would be the three names right now. Those are the three, you know, Barty's obviously retired. Osaka's not playing her best tennis, but Iga's on that tier of like, when you look at this generation, again, this past three-year run, what Iga Svantec's managed to accomplish. And I'll look at this in the offseason when the you know year is officially complete. It would be great if it would be great. It would just help from a narrative perspective for me personally. Come on, Iga. Aren't you playing your career for me here at Cracked Rackets? And by the way, I just looked at the time, 28-minute mark. Maybe I will hit the hour uh, show length on this mini-break podcast. Keep it consistent here. But again, it would really help if Iga captured the year-end title as well and just like the definitive world number one and she beat the best of the rest all the challengers in fort worth that said again in terms of three-year run and really a two and a half year run or two and three month run we're gonna do some comparing this offseason that i promise to all of you listeners with that said you look now by the way Iga Svantec 51 and 12 overall at the majors excuse me 50 and 12 i'm gonna take away her qualifying victories but add in the two wins tennis abstract is currently missing so 50 and 12 overall in the majors i mean come on 50 and 12 she's winning 80 percent of her matches at slams I don't know what else to say. Iga just statistically marveling. And so very, very fun that she obviously we get to see the world number one try and put that final feather in her cap in what has been the definitive season of 2022, of course, for Arena Sabalenka. Look, has she played well this year? At times, yes. At times, it's been tough. You look for Sabalenka into the semifinals of the U.S. Open. It's her third major semifinal, third in her last five majors played as well. She's really had four distinct runs this year, U.S. Open, Cincinnati, Stuttgart, Rome. I mean, yes, she made a final at the 250 level in the Netherlands on the grass courts, but you know her best win in that run was Shelby Rogers. I don't think that's a definitive run, but Rome, Stuttgart, Cincinnati, U.S. Open, she's made semifinals or better. Round of 16 in Australia was fairly solid as well, considering, again, she's given away three, uh, 100 more free points than the second next player and has over 300 double faults on the year that she's even in the mix for the year-end finals. And you look now, Arena Sabalenka, seventh in the live rankings, but sixth in the points race now. It's a 513-point gap between her and Maria Sakkari, which given there's not an year-end Indian Wells on the schedule this year. Yeah, you've got Ostrava, you've got Linz, you've got a couple of things, but Sabalenka's probably going to get to the year-end finals and that's despite all of the serving woes. And that's a testament to, again, her ability to play on her own terms against anyone. And the fact that I really do think outside of the serve, her willingness to move forward, the consistency of her returns now, the fluidity of her movement, she continues to get a little bit better at everything. And 
boy, if she stops giving away those double faults, again, you could just tell, even against the world number one, Iga, she's able to play on her terms. She's a disruptor in every draw, and as we see at the majors, when she's playing her best, uh, she's absolutely in the hunt to capture a title very much again. She can do all the things at Serena Williams Power Tennis Country Club because I do feel one day we will be formally inducting her. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s-inspired style and cutting-edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high-energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco C. CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at newbalance.com. With that said, Iga into the finals, where now she's going to take on Own Jabur. And not to be disrespectful to Jabur, I don't anticipate I have 20 minutes on her because respectfully, p- part of the script of her upset victory had to do with the shaky play of Caroline Garcia, and I'd point to the very first game of the match. Shabur goes up an immediate break of serve, you know, from 30 love up, and Caroline Garcia connects on a plus one forehand to start, and you think, okay, things are going to go to script. How does she lose that game? Well, the next four points, plus one forehand error, plus one forehand error, plus one forehand success, has an easy put away overhead, not easy, but not a tough one, misses it in the net, backhand sprayed, break to Shabur. Four unforced errors. I don't know if they all counted as unforced errors because final count for Garcia, 12 winners against 23 unforced errors. But in my stat book, four giveaways to own Jabur. It's an early break of serve. Now, Jabur served really well in this match, despite making only 43% of her first serve. So she didn't serve really well. She served really efficiently, excuse me, throughout the course of this match. Um... I mean, that said, the 43% of its first serves speak for itself. Now, she won 83% of her first serve points, 57% of her second serve points, didn't face a break point throughout the course of the match, but that's also because Caroline Garcia's return positioning just wasn't working, and that's where the efficiency of Jabur comes into play. Jabur's ability to absorb pace from opponents has always been special, but her ability to absorb that first strike, even when Garcia would pepper a return at her feet on the baseline, Jabur is just so adept at sending that first ball to the open court and just forcing Garcia to play that second shot on the run, not allow her to have her feet set and take the aggressive swings that she's been taking throughout the course of the, these past three months. And even when Garcia had her opportunities, again, she f- kind of fumbled them away. The you know I, the biggest credit I would give to Own Jabur, I think the best single game she played in the match, I think she played two standout games. And again, she was pretty efficient on serve, but the 43% first serve percentage speaks for itself. Although Jabur, 21 winners against 15 unforced errors. Again, efficient is the word I would turn to. To break for 3-2 in the second set, that's the first game. That's the, the game I thought Jabur played her best tennis, and that's the game that separated these two opponents. Because in that game, Jabur connected on a couple of returns that made Garcia uncomfortable. In particular, her return to break a backhand feathered at the feet of Garcia that Garcia is unable to handle, misses in the net. Exceptional return to secure the break. She also connected on a forehand cross-court passing shot in that game, which she hit extraordinarily well, connected on a forehand on the rise, also to sort of pressure that Garcia forehand, again, not allow her to push forward in the court. 
that was where Jabir's ability to take that return on the rise, her ability to take balls on the short hop off of both wings, her ability and willingness to be the aggressor and step inside the baseline, you know, the totality of things Garcia uh, Jabir could do, throwing in the drop shots, the lobs, the short angles, again, how well she was hitting her plus one shots, her first shots after the serve off of both wings to force Garcia on to be on the move. Jabir did coax many of the errors out of Caroline Garcia, and I think our statistician gave her a lot of credit for forced errors throughout the course of this match. That said, it was disappointing from Caroline Garcia, and I think my biggest takeaway from this match, as great as Garcia has been, and that power can be overwhelming, and if she's facing opponents who can't handle that power, and there's not many who can handle it the way Own Jabur can, as well as dish back out some aggression of her own uh, to throw Garcia off her front foot, against elite competition, Garcia needs to find a plan B. You know, she refused to back off on the return of serve, maybe go a foot or two behind the baseline, just give her a little bit more time, not necessarily to swing more cleanly, but maybe to spread the court with her return more. Instead of feathering it at the feet of Jabir, hit that ball down the line, hit that ball cross court, force owns to have to play on the run. Again, a lot of missed Garcia returns in this match. She had her opportunities epitomized the backhand return she misses on match point in the net. She just wasn't hit it cleanly throughout the course of this match. It was a rare blip in what has otherwise been an immaculate three-month run. And by the way, that's allowed to happen even to the best players of the world. Ask Own Jabir, who comes in with a clay, you know, two major clay court results. I think it was Roman Madrid going into the French Open and loses first round to Magda Lynette, or her first round loss three sets to Daria Seville at Indian Wells. Now those are Jabir's only two bad losses of the season. And by the way, for Garcia, a loss to Jabir isn't even a bad loss. It's just how she played. I'm sure she won't be particularly pleased with it. But yeah, plan B, plan C, plan D, being more willing to be a bit more defensive on the return of serve doesn't mean you have to take a less uh, aggressive swing, but you know, be a little bit more defensive in position in your positioning. Use that return as a table setter rather than the approach shot. You know, again, finding some margin. Uh, Because I do think Garcia has the physicality, the movement capabilities to extend matches, finding that 75% rally ball, not gunning it on every forehand. As great as that mentality has been, as great as that mentality, and again, it works against 90% of players, but against the best 10%, you got to have B, C, and D. And that's what we're looking for from Garcia moving forward. But on the flip side, for own ship, and by the way, for Caroline Garcia, worth noting, she's back into the top 10, 10 in the live rankings, five in the points race above Caroline. Uh, you know, she's got a 25 point edge on Arena Sabalenka. So everything I said about Sabalenka's positioning holds true for Garcia. She's positioned herself beautifully to just work her way back onto the highest stages of the game next season and rally off of the momentum she's built here. On the flip side, again, you look for Own Jabir now 104 and 38 since August 2020. You look for her at the majors now during this stretch of time. She's made five total second weeks in what, 10 total majors now since August 2020? Yeah, we had four, four, and two. Five second weeks. She's now into what, I believe overall in terms of semifinals, she's now made two semifinals. She's made two finals now as well in those 10 majors. Who has made multiple finals? Let's think. Barty, Sviantek, Jabur. Is that your list? Goff's made one. Rabakina's made one. Krachikova's made one. 
you know, Kennan's made just the one. Azarenka, Osaka, they've each made just the one. I believe that's your list. It's Jabur, it's Fiontek, it's Barty. And if I'm missing anyone, I do apologize. But it, it speaks to the degree of success she has had. And again, it's not just uh, beating who she's supposed to beat, although certainly she's been able to do that. You look for Jabur again since August 2020. She's 85 and 23. That's a 79% win percentage. Excuse me, 86 and 23 against opponents ranked outside the top 20 against top 20 opponents, 18 and 15. I mean, again, top 20 opponents are the best of the best. In professional tennis. And if you're playing them 500, or in her case, a little over 500, you belong amongst that group. And obviously, for Own Jabur, who became the first African woman to reach a Grand Slam singles final at Wimbledon, she becomes the first African woman to reach a U.S. Open women's singles final as well. And it's just, again, such a fantastic, hate to use this cliche, but just such an immense ambassador for our sport. And she obviously refers to herself as the minister of happiness. And that's the truth. There, even in the frustration after the match, and it helps that she's been winning so much, but there's always a smile on the face of Own Jabur. She's such an intelligent interview, just always offering insight into her thinking, into the process, into everything she's performed. By the way, Jabur's only the seventh female player to reach the final in Wimbledon at the U.S. Open and the U.S. Open at the same season uh, since 2000. That list, Venus, Serena, Davenport, Enin, Zavonareva, Ker- Zavonareva, that's how you say that name, Kerber, and Jabur. It's a pretty good list to be on. I mean, I don't think Vera Zavonareva is going to be, well, will she be a Hall of Famer? Uh, that's a question for Ben Rothenberg and I to get into a stupid argument about. But tell you what, Kerber and in Davenport, Serena and Venus are, and Jabur has put herself on a good list now. And is she an unequivocal attachment to the narrative of the past three years, the way Sviantek and Barty are? At this point, no, not quite yet. She captures a slam title at the 2022 U.S. Open. If she's able to sustain this for two, three more seasons where she's making, you know, year-end championships because you look now for Own Jabur, who's second in the points race. She, with her victory and by making this U.S. Open final, has clinched her spot in the WTA Tour Finals. Own Jabur now number two, a career high in the WTA rankings. It's not Hall of Fame yet. But it's not out of the discussion either. And we like to talk about in the goat race, out of the goat race. Jabir, not in the Hall of Fame, but she's not out of the Hall of Fame yet. She's putting herself in the conversation for one of those historic, again, generation-defining careers. And she is not the definitive talent of her generation, but she's definitely in the conversation, right? If I ask you right now, Jabir, Conteve, Sakari, Pagula who are all, Garcia, who are all 28 years old, or, well, Muguruza would be the defining talent of the 28-year-olds. But after that, again, Conteve, Jabur, Sakari, Garcia, who's had the best career of that group? Danielle Collins probably belongs in that cohort, as well as Madison Keys. I mean, Keys probably the edge over everyone, not named Muguruza, but two slam finals now for Own Jabur. That's one more than Madison Keys. Now, she's got fewer semifinals, but she's in the conversation is the point I'm trying to have. I'm talking to myself here. This is where, again, I apologize for the lack of guests. I will have Gil Gross on tomorrow's show breaking down the men's semifinals, talking about our two singles finals as well. That is my promise to all of you listeners. But, man, again, we get world number one versus world number two 
It, and I know, well, she is now world number two. So you can actually say we have world number one versus world number two in our championship match, our final Grand Slam match of this 2022 season. Now, of course, you look in their career head to head, Jabir two and two. Overall, Now, both of those wins came last season on hard courts, grass courts, respectively. Iga, a victory in the Rome final, 2-2 two and two this year, but mm, 1-2. versus two. And potentially on the men's side, if it's Rude versus Alcaraz, they're playing for the world number one spot as well. The ending we deserve. In a season defied by parody, we're playing for the world number one in our final major match. That is called a gift from the tennis gods. But with that said, that's your look at day 11. Now, of course, we will save our thoughts on the women's singles final for tomorrow's show with Gil, as well as our GSP previewing that women's singles final. Of course, again, if you're looking for previews of each of the remaining matches in New York, head on over to that Great Shot podcast feed, which you can find wherever you listen to your shows or on our website, CrackRackets.com. Of course, a shout out, as always, to our super producer, Daniel Westoff, for the of an editing job he does day in, day out, making all of this content possible. We're going to have 24 podcasts for all of you listeners. Excuse me, 14 times two is not 24. It's 28 podcasts for all of you. I guess we missed day one aces of the day. So 27 pods through two weeks of action. Uh, Shout out to Westoff for tolerating all of my nonsense for as long as he does. Of course, a shout out as well to our friends at Tennis Point, tennis-point.com. The promo code is... CR15. With that said, for our super producer, Daniel Westoff, our friends at Tennis Point, from all of us here at both Crack Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. You know what we say. That's the break, and we will talk to you all tomorrow. Thanks, everyone.